Welcome back to Firewall. I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. My guest today is Howard Wolfson. Howard is well known to the listeners of our show, both because uh, we talk about you sometimes on the air and you join us sometimes. Um, so, Howard, thank you for, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, little different context. I think most people know you as a political strategist, communications guru, all that kind of stuff. And I actually have you here today in your context as an education policy expert. So a uh, little little different than usual, but the way we got into this was, uh, as the listeners know, Howard and I are part of a political consultant text group that very, very frequently exchanges messages, uh, often likes to talk about the issues of the day. And when the Supreme Court affirmative action ruling came up and we were discussing it, Howard and I kind of both made the same case, which is like, Yes, we both support affirmative action. We disagree with the ruling. But the reality is we're talking about a couple thousand people here at a handful of elite schools. This is not really the point, right? And when you're trying to think about the big issues facing American education today, it's really not Harvard's admissions policies. And so um, that led to a broader discussion of saying, hey, you know, why don't we uh, talk about what education could and should look like. Um, so, Howard, your work at Bloomberg, again, everyone kind of knows you as a political guy. What's the education part of your job? So I guess I have uh, two hats. One, um, as you pointed out, is sort of the political hack part of my job. I didn't job. say hack. I said guy. No. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I'll call myself a hack or a recovering hack. Um, so I advise Mike Bloomberg on politics and, and where he spends his money politically. Um, the, the other part of my job, which in many respects uh, is more rewarding, um, I run our education philanthropy. So we're going to spend uh, about a billion dollars over the next five years on various education initiatives around the country in K through 12 and in higher education. Um, and I oversee that work um, for, for Mike and for Patty Harris at the foundation. Right, and you also, when you were deputy mayor under Mike, at least dealt with schools and education quite a bit. So you've kind of seen this from multiple angles at this point. Yeah, the, um, my technical title when I was at City Hall was I was deputy mayor for communications and governmental relations. Uh, but I also had a, um, a major kind of interface responsibility with the Department of Education here in New York City I think under the premise that so much of education policy in New York and, and really around the country is driven by politics, right? I think there are some policies that tend to be more um, objectively determined, uh, but, but education really is so riven by politics that it kind of made sense for somebody at City Hall to be deeply engaged in it from that perspective. Yeah. So based on, and you've also, when you were a political consultant, did you work for the UFT or you're just sort of longtime friends with Randy Weingarten? Well, um, both. Uh, the firm that I worked for, then Glover Park, which has gone through several different iterations. What's it called now? I, I don't know, actually. <laughs> it's, it, 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 it's been acquired and has acquired others and has a different name. Um, Still doing great work, I'm sure. But when I was there, uh, the UFT was a client. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, I got to know Randy and uh, Randy Weingarten, who's the president of the UFT, in that capacity, uh, and have remained, I would say, friends with her. I have a lot of respect for her. Um, I think she is a genuinely good person. Um, she has become kind of the bete noir of Republican conservatives. They've really kind of gone after her. Um, uh, but I like her. I don't agree with her in a lot of education policies, but I think that she is a, a genuinely committed person. Right. So you've seen this from arguably just about, as, as someone who's not actually a teacher or principal or something like that, you've seen it from the government side, you've seen it from the union side, and you've seen it from the philanthropic side. So, Well, one thing yeah. I, would, I would just add, which is really important, actually, it, it didn't really occur to me until I, I began doing this work, um, my own personal history with it, but... So I come from a really big family of teachers. My okay. mom was a teacher, my dad was a teacher, my stepmother was a teacher, my stepsister was a teacher, and three of my aunts were teachers. So um, I didn't become a teacher, uh, but in some sense that is kind of in my blood and I remember really distinctly my mom coming home after a day of teaching in the South Bronx in the 70s, which was not a very easy place to teach at that time being on the phone every night with parents of her students, talking to them um, about the kids. And so her job in many respects never stopped. She was really deeply committed to it. 
and so I have a lot of respect, admiration, and I think some degree of personal knowledge of what it takes to be a teacher, what it means to be yeah. a teacher. So given all of that then, so basically since birth, you've been sort of thinking about this issue. Um, simple, hard question, but simple. What works and what doesn't work? Well, I'm glad we have a long time to talk about this today. And this is a nine-hour podcast. Exactly. Special multi-part podcast on education policy in the United States. Um, you know, I think we should start out by, by um, saying something which uh, folks who are against education reform say to make the case against reform, but is at least somewhat true, which is the most important thing, I think, in determining a kid's outcome is where a kid comes from. I mean, there has to be a reality check around the fact that many kids are walking into schools, coming from impoverished families that don't themselves have a history of education, that may not be intact uh, in any real way, we have a big problem of homelessness students in this city and in other places. We have many students who come from multi-generational poverty, whose families get evicted uh, from homes every three or four or five or six months, who are switching schools. If you could wave a wand and eliminate poverty in this country, you would go a long way towards improving educational outcomes. Right. So I just think we have to concede. Yeah, I, so, so let me challenge you a little bit. Yes, I mean, obviously, it, it's hard to argue what you just said, but the opponents of education reform, in my experience, love to say something along the lines of, well, you can't solve education Correct. until you solve poverty. Right. Like, you're never going to fully solve poverty. I Correct. mean, I'm trying with school meals. Everyone's trying different ways. Right. So it just seems to me that it's this blanket excuse to, to avoid any accountability for results. Couldn't agree more. I, I mean, I, I think you have to acknowledge that poverty is a huge problem. Multi-generational poverty, all kinds of family dislocation is a huge problem. And then you have to say, however, while we are attempting to deal with those challenges in different policy realms, we still have to improve the lives of kids in the here and now. And there are things that we can do from the moment that they walk into school to the moment that they come home at night or when they graduate that will meaningfully impact their lives. But I think it's important to at least acknowledge that there are things that happen outside the school For sure. that are probably more important than things that so, happen okay, outside so the school. Okay, so given that, in the world that we live in today, right. some policies work better than yes. others. Based on everything you've seen, what do you like and what do you not like? Right. Well, so I kind of imagine that we that I gave myself a wand, right? Yes. Here's the magic wand that Bradley has kind of conjured up this morning. Absolutely. It's a special firewall power. <laughs> yeah. And we're going to apply it to education policy today. I think the most important um, determinant in a kid's uh, future trajectory outside of the home, uh, once they're in the classroom, is the quality of the teacher. Um, I've seen all kinds of studies to show that a great teacher can have an enormous impact on a kid and a bad teacher can have a very, very negative impact on a kid. So if I was imagining education policy from the ground up in this country, I would pay teachers massively more money uh, to do their jobs. Now, I would give them significant raises in exchange for a set of changes to their work rules like that what? many unions would not like. Sure. So um, what would be your deal? I, first of all, I think you, you, you would have to have some degree of differentiated pay. Right? right now, pay is based on the amount of educational attainment you have as a teacher, you get paid more if you have a master's degree in many places uh, than not. And it is based on seniority. You get a certain amount of money each year based on the, your time in the system. I think you would have to say that we're going to begin to look at quality in determining some amount of pay structure, just like you do or we do in the private sector. Mm -hmm. um, you've, got, you've got to begin to... to reward better teachers for doing a better job. Why do K through 12 teachers who are typically not producing academic scholarship need tenure? That would be another thing I would, I would change. Um, that is a, a vestige of, um, of a McCarthy era fight around um, the deep politicization of, of schools. Now, you know, you could argue that our schools have become once again deeply, deeply politicized. Uh, and so maybe you could very, um, uh, you, you, you could possibly make the argument. Would, would the U, if, if, if a New York State public school teacher 
was rabidly pro-Trump. Right. Would the UFT actually publicly really go to great lengths to defend this person? Yeah, I think they would, actually. Um, just on the principle. Um, but, but I think the, the reality is that, that tenure is um, now serves as a mechanism for bad teachers to remain in the system. Yeah. Right? It is, not, it is not really protecting teachers' free speech rights or political rights. It is. And I think there are ways that you can do that beyond tenure, right? You could change the law to provide some protections for speech and politics, political activity for teachers, without uh, basically giving them blanket immunity uh, for potential incompetence. Right. Um, is the rubber room a real thing? Uh, the rubber room is a real thing. It is not really rubber. Um, What's it more like, a kind of plasterboard? <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's just kind of a, um, it, it looks like a, a way station uh, to hell, actually. It's not, it's not. Purgatory. It, yeah, purgatory. They're not particularly attractive places. Um, uh, Bradley brings up the rubber room, which was when Mike was mayor, um, he made a decision that if you, if you were a teacher who couldn't teach, who really couldn't teach, who had all sorts of issues teaching, and the city was unable to fire you because of the, the laws around tenure and other things, we basically pulled you out of the classroom. I mean, we basically made a decision that even if we couldn't fire you, we weren't going to put you in front of kids. And so we created this room called the rubber room where teachers who really couldn't teach but we couldn't fire went. Uh, and some of them went day after day after day, year after year. We tried to diminish the number of, of uh, teachers who were, who were in there. We talked about buyouts and other types of things. But m my guess is it still exists. But it's a good example of how the system knows often who bad teachers are, right? I mean, I've talked to my parents about this. The teachers know who the bad right. teachers are. Um, uh, but and do you, you think most teachers want to protect the bad teachers, or is this just effectively kind of like the problem we have in the rest of our politics, which is a handful of loud, active voices dictate everything? Um, I think it's a little bit of a mix. I think that there are certainly some good teachers who look at a, a, uh, a teacher who um, is struggling and think there, but for the grace of God go I. We don't want to get rid of that person. But I think most teachers recognize that if you can't do the job, you shouldn't be in the building. Um, now, how many years you should have a grace period, what kind of training you should get, I mean, these are important kinds of questions. Yeah. I don't think you want to fire somebody in year one. But I do believe that you need to pay teachers more. You, you basically need to incentivize students in college to look at teaching as a meaningful alternative to medical school or law school. There are some countries where students look at teaching at... Like at, what? Uh, Scandinavian countries. Yeah, it's always um, Scandinavian. It's always Scandinavian. Uh, um, you need to basically incentivize um, uh, the best and the brightest to go into teaching. You need to pay teachers more who are currently in the profession. But you basically then need to say, okay, we're going to pay you a lot more money, but we're going to expect that you are going to act like professionals in the way that other professionals act, differentiated pay. You're going to make it easier to fire people who aren't doing the job, so, those types so of things. So make the case. Okay, so now we're going to increase the education budget, mm -hmm. which means taxes are probably going to go up to pay for that, yes. right? Yep. Make the case to me why long-term both the taxpayers and the economy are better off paying teachers more now as opposed to the price we pay down the road. Right. Well, I'll make, a, I'll make a political argument that I would make in the short term, which is if I were a governor or a mayor or advising, I'll never be a governor or mayor, if I was advising a governor or mayor, which is probably more realistic, uh, and I was trying to sort of advise them on how to sell a deal like this, more mm -hmm. money for teachers, um, for uh, a set of different um, work rules. I would go out and I would say to the public, we're gonna pay teachers more, these are your friends, these are your neighbors, these are your kids, but at the same time, we're gonna expect more from them, we're gonna demand more from them, and we will get a better set of results um, because of that. And because we're getting a better set of results, our state, our city will do better in the long run. Not even in the long run, I don't think you have to wait 20 years to see the results, I think you, you have to wait to look at a, uh, uh, a high school class or a, a class of kids going from elementary school into high school. Um, I think there is no question that if you improve the schools in any given jurisdiction, you create a healthier economy, you create a place where businesses want to relocate, businesses want to start, um, and it creates a virtuous cycle. But I think you could sell that to the public. We're going to have to pay a little bit more, yeah. but we're going to get a lot more in return. 
So if I remember this fact correctly, teacher pay under Mike Bloomberg went up by 43%. So Mike, so did that result in, that's a big jump. It did. Did, did it result in meaningful outcomes? It did, actually. Uh, you know, we have a problem now in the system in New York City where we've got a lot of kids who've left the system, right? So it's a different system today than it was when Mike left office because... And they left for what reasons? Well, I think some of it was the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, I think that uh, you had families leaving New York City, period. Um, families with young kids, I think, especially were more likely to leave. Um, and I think some of it is that um, when I talk to parents now who are navigating the system, the, the uncertainty around placement is really profound. So if you send your kid to private school in New York and the kid starts in kindergarten uh, or pre-K, you, you know exactly where that kid is going to wind up 12 years later, assuming the kid doesn't get thrown out. If you start New York City public schools in kindergarten, you have no idea where your kid's going to go in middle, middle school. And you have no idea where they're going to go in high school. And for some parents, that is profoundly destabilizing. Um, and not being able to guarantee a, a kind of a quality education for your kid, knowing that your kid's going to go to a decent school, is a real problem. And I think people leave the system as a result of it. They don't want to deal with the uncertainty. They don't want to apply to 12 schools and get your 12th choice. Right. So this is a little bit of a crazy idea. I remember one time, um, and I'll stop reminiscing about the Bloomberg world shortly, but I was in a meeting when Mike was mayor with Mike and Randall Stevenson, who at the time was the CEO of AT&T. And Mike said to Randall, what's your biggest business problem? And Randall said, I can't get enough trained workforce. Right. Um, what if you had a world, and we'll, we'll get into sort of vocational education in a minute, but like where... Like, so AT&T seems to me that if, if you said to Randall Stevenson, who's not a New York City resident, but let's say he were, okay, Randall, you're really rich. You're going to pay more money in local taxes, but it's going to be, you know, a better outcome for the city that you live in long term. He very well may say, yeah, you'll waste the fucking money just like you do everything else. I'm not paying, right? If you said, Randall, we will create an AT&T high school in New York City. You tell us the skills people need to have. You fund it. And you guarantee jobs, and we will provide people with this training. Uh, could that work? Yeah. Let me. Uh, so the answer to that is, I, I'd give Randall a better deal. I would say we'll create one of these high schools, and the city will fund it. Okay. All you have to do is tell us what kind of training you need to give the kids, and agree to come into the, the schools and give that training. One of the challenges in mm -hmm. setting up a high school like that is, you know, understandably. Uh, most teachers in the New York City school system are not in a position to train kids to go work for AT&T in terms of the very specific technical skills yeah. you would need to go work for AT&T. So the people who work for AT&T now would need to be willing and able to come into the school to train those kids. But you are 100% right, Bradley. I believe that in terms of vocational education, and so let's yeah, switch let's topics that, a little yeah. bit, although we're still talking about K-12. Yeah. Um, well, actually, we're talking about really... 912 um, high school. Uh, I think schools, uh, school systems should be encouraging businesses, soliciting businesses, large employers in the city to basically partner with high schools in the deepest possible way to identify the skills that are needed for kids in those schools to, when they graduate, to come out and work for an AT&T or a Con Edison, or pick your company. And, and politically, that should be fine. Would the UFT object to that? So, you know, um, we had a lot of battles with Michael Mulgrew, who's the current head of the union here in New York City. But he actually comes from a career tech background. Um, I think he is supportive of this. Uh, I don't think that... It doesn't that, really hurt his members. No. Um, I don't think it, there would be a major challenge in terms of the union, although... God knows, given how big the contract is, there may be some issues that you know around work rules or those types of things. Um, but having said that, the model that you have just set out, which in fact is a model that we are trying to create at Bloomberg, is not something that has really been done at all in this country. Yeah, so talk about the work that you guys are doing. So um, you, you, you hit upon the AT&T example. Um, I think you're absolutely right that what you need to do is identify a major employer, if not the biggest employer, in any given municipality. An employer with real history um, that is likely going to be around for mm -hmm. 10, 20, 30, 40 years 
based on the track record and the trajectory, um, a position, uh, a, an employer uh, that has many unfilled positions. So there is, you know, a, a lot of um, opportunity for kids to come in and work. And you have to go to that employer and say, okay, we are going to go in, we're going to create a high school. Um, the high school, you're going to have the deepest possible partnership with this high school. You are going to tell us what skills you need um, to uh, graduate kids so that they can come work for you. Your people, the people who currently work for you, are going to come in, are going to be allowed to come in and teach the kids those skills, in addition to the other kinds of English and uh, literature and, and language and math that kids are learning in addition to the, the workplace uh, kind of education. Um, and um, uh, we at Bloomberg, our pitch is, we're going to de-risk that for you. We're going to put the upfront money, mm -hmm. um, and uh, all you basically need to do is uh, tell us what kind of curricula you need uh, and supply the people to help teach And you it. guys are going to pay to build schools? Um, in some cases, you don't really actually need to build a school. There are buildings that exist. Yeah. Uh, you may do some retrofitting or those types of things. Um, we are trying to do that with hospitals, right? So hospitals in many places in this country are the single biggest employer. Mm -hmm. um, they are places that have, in many cases, thousands of unfilled positions currently. You cannot get enough nurses. You cannot get enough techs. You cannot get enough phlebotomists, the people that draw blood. They are completely unable to staff adequately and appropriately uh, for their current levels. Uh, and so we basically have gone to a couple of dozen different cities, a couple of, couple of dozen different hospitals in those cities, pitched them on this idea, said, mm -hmm. we're going to help pay for this up front. We're going to pair you the hospital with a school. In some cases, it's a charter school. In some cases, it's a, a more traditional district school. Um, and you're going to come in and you're going to form this model. We are in the RFP process now. Um, are you getting a lot of applications? A lot. Uh, when, when I mean, it, it was... Who, who's the, is it the city bringing the school and the hospital together as the applicant? How does it work? It depends on the municipality. In some cases, they're walking in the door to us, partnership formed. Yeah. Um, Which in, must give them an advantage. Yeah. In some cases, we helped kind of create the marriage. Like we, the hospital was interested. We knew of a school that was interested or the school district was interested. Um, I believe uh, that um, uh, this will be the most important thing that I've ever worked on in my career. So, and I imagine SEIU, are they involved too? Because it would seem like it's good for them as well, right? Yeah. We haven't actually done one in New York City yet. Um, they're the hospital union. They're the hospital union here. So, so t tell me why it's the most important thing, because you have worked on a lot of stuff over the course of your career, and give us a sense of if this works at scale, what does it mean? Well, I think you take a step back. Why is it the most important thing? It's the most important thing because 50% of the people in this country aren't going to college, and they are graduating high school into jobs that are not providing them meaningful pathways into a middle-class life. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, we, have a, we talked about teacher quality. Uh, we talked about the reform of sort of work rules. We have a huge problem in this country in that basically the system is geared towards graduating kids into college. And if you don't go to college, the system kind of washes its hands of you. You know, they basically say, you know, goodbye and good luck. And then you can go work in a retail job um, that really does not provide a ladder into any sort of um, meaningful future from an earnings perspective. Um, that's a tremendous failure for kids. It's a tremendous failure for society. Um, and so we need to do something, in my view, radically different okay. in order to impact more outcomes for those kids who are not going to college. Um, this is a way to do that. It is a way to basically take a cohort of kids who might not otherwise be college-bound, who might otherwise be graduating into jobs that are not, would not pay them a meaningful wage, and put them in situations where they can uh, uh, basically have a ladder into the middle class that they would not otherwise have had. And we should be doing this with hospitals. To your point, we should be doing it with AT&T. We should be doing it with other large employers. Um, we're going to start with hospitals because in many respects, from my perspective, it's the most obvious. Because again, huge employer, lots of open positions, durable. They're going now. Hospitals aren't going away. Hard, right. to, hard to outsource a lot of those jobs. Um, um, I believe that if we are successful in this, 
every hospital in America is going to want to partner with a school in 10 years. And you will create at scale a meaningful set of pathways for kids who otherwise would be in much more perilous situations. And right, so there's something, what, like 50 million K through 12 kids in this country? Yeah. So half go to college, half don't. Of the 25 million who don't, if you had this system in place, what percentage can you capture? I mean, it's a really good question. I have not actually done the math in that way, in part because we're starting so small. Yeah, of course. Um, uh, I do believe that healthcare is the most obvious example of where this would work initially. But I think, A, you start out with, let's say, half a dozen or a dozen examples of hospitals where this is working. Every hospital is going to want one. You start out with a couple of with a half a dozen or a dozen hospitals. Other large employers in those cities will want to do this mm -hmm. uh, as well. And so, you know, you're never, you're never going to be able to um, help every single kid. That's just not realistic in yeah. terms of how life works. Can't do everything for everyone. But I believe that, that this is the best chance, something like this is the best chance that we have to end this kind of cycle of um, neglect of kids who are not college bound. Are there countries that do this well? There are. are. Any that are not in Scandinavia? Yes, Germany does <laughs> Germany, this. Germany, Germany does yeah. this well. Um, uh, Germany doesn't do it exactly like this. Uh, uh, and they have a different kind of social compact model around what society expects of employers um, to do for kids. But Germany does a version of this uh, that I think we ought to be trying to emulate to some extent in an American context. So take the other 25 million kids who are going to college right, right. now. Um, there is this sort of assumption that if you're in a certain economic status, you should absolutely go to college, that everyone should have a you know, liberal arts four-year degree, and the benefit of that is so significant that no matter what career they pursue, it's a worthwhile endeavor. You agree with that or not? Um, you know, I, I, um, I think from a macro perspective, the data suggests that that's correct. Right? College is a pretty big accelerant for the average kid in terms of their earnings, mm -hmm. and the difference between what you can earn with a college degree and what you don't is significant. Now, I think if we improve the pathways for kids who are not college bound, that becomes less true, right? Um, in Germany, there's actually less of this kind of distinction between people who go to university and people who don't from a economic perspective and a class perspective. Um, so if we create better outcomes for kids who are not college bound, that becomes less true. But I think today, if you were advising a kid, given the system as it is, you probably are suggesting if they're looking to, to maximize their earnings that they're going to college. If you could take the wand that I gave you earlier and kind of remake college as well, would it be the same system? Or, I mean, I, think I would argue that you have tons of people going into massive debt, getting degrees and things that don't really adequately prepare them for the workforce. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we've got to look at college um, in a couple of different ways. There are... There are, let's say, a couple of hundred elite schools. You know, they're not obviously all in the Ivy League, but there are a couple of hundred schools in this country that um, if you can get into, probably makes sense to go take out some debt because they act as pretty significant accelerants for lifetime earnings. Mm -hmm. There are many more colleges that are private in this country that don't really do that. Okay. Um, that kids are taking out a lot of debt and they don't see an adequate return. Yeah. And I think, it, it, in fact, families are kind of seeing this, right? Um, at some point, college did, the, 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 the two, in my view, the two most successful market, marketers in the post-war era were the folks selling home ownership and the folks selling a college education, yep. right? This was not the case before World War II. Since World War II, it has become the default. Everybody should be going to college. Um, and uh, a lot of colleges don't particularly serve kids. They've, they've kind of sprung up in this era where uh, everyone was supposed to go to school, the kids take out massive amounts of debt, and they don't really get a good return uh, for their money. Um, I think a way to deal with that, again, I think you create much better options and pathways for kids who are not college bound so that kids who are not, wouldn't be going to college now have better outcomes, and kids who might be going to college now because they feel like they have to, could look at that and say, oh, I don't have to now. 
I don't ha I don't have to take four years of my life and you know fifty thousand dollars a year or whatever it is. I can actually go to a different kind of high school with a different set of uh, learnings and get a job and 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 propel myself that way. Um, so I, I think that 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 if you create a different high school model uh, and a and a different way of educating kids who are not college bound, uh, you will help solve that problem. One thing that we should be doing is having summer school for every kid in the country, certainly every kid who is struggling with learning loss coming out of the pandemic. And I think, unfortunately, that's many, if not most, kids in this country. Um, the data on the learning loss from the pandemic is obvious. It's clear. Test scores have gone down uh, across the board uh, in every state in the country. Uh, and the kids who are most impacted adversely are kids you would imagine, poor kids, kids who are already struggling, took a real hit during the pandemic. And as it turns out, one of the ways to help them is for them to be in school more often. Um, so you could extend school hours, you could have extra tutoring after school, uh, but school during the summer is a really effective and important way to make up for the learning loss that these kids experience. And I think unless we take some very dramatic steps, uh, we will never be able to help these kids catch up. Uh, federal government did provide some money for summer school, but they didn't really give a lot of guidance or direction. Uh, a lot of places have chosen not to implement summer school. Uh, some parents don't like it. Um, although many do. Teachers unions are not huge fans. System really isn't built to accommodate it. It's, uh, we have this antiquated schedule built uh, around the agrarian model. Um, there was a, a school district in Richmond that tried to effectuate it. They were only able to do it in a couple of places. Um, so this is one of those areas where philanthropy can step in and make a real impact. We, uh, and by we I mean Mike, um, funded summer school for uh, or made summer school programming available for every charter school in New York City. Most of them um, took him up on the offer last summer. They had uh, summer school for kids um, in New York. It was very successful. We tested the kids on the way in and the way out. They actually made progress. Um, so much so that we have extended the program to half a dozen other cities around the country. And um, as we speak, uh, we've got um, tens of thousands of kids in summer school around the country trying to make up for the learning loss that they experienced during the pandemic. Um, I feel really good about this. Mike talks about it in the op-ed. Um, but it's something that really should be done at scale everywhere, not just in the places where one philanthropy can engage and make an impact. And, you know, do you think it generally does matter where you go to college? I mean, I, I have, and we've discussed this before, argued that I think it actually is, is a highly overrated thing and it's not that important, but I could also see how you could take my view and say, that's just the product of like an ultra, ultra privileged perspective where you're able to like go to these schools, succeed, and then say, well, I don't see the correlation. I don't think it's really that important. Um, you have a daughter starting college in a couple of months, right? Yeah. Um, how important do you think it is? Um, I think it's important that she gets a good education and has a good experience. I think that there are lots of colleges that she could have gone to that would have provided that. I think where um, college actually makes an enormous difference is for kids who are really from the lowest socioeconomic cohort. Um, and if you have a kid in that cohort who is going to an elite school, it's like a rocket boost. Those kids are really benefiting from the social connections they're making, from the education they're getting, from all of the supports that are around them. Yes, for those kids, it actually does make a huge difference. Now, as an employer, you may say, I don't make any distinction between a kid who goes to Harvard and a kid who may go to, you know, a, a state school, right? Mm -hmm. But as it turns out, most employers do make those kinds of distinctions. And for poor kids who go to elite schools, 
it's a huge, huge, huge advantage. So online school, we know that building schools is an unbelievably expensive, cumbersome process, especially in, in union jurisdictions. Um, and we know that communicating knowledge doesn't necessarily require two people to be in, in the same physical room to do so. Um, at the same time, all of us who are parents, I'm looking at you, I'm looking at Hugo sitting here, like experienced online school during COVID, and I think the universal verdict is it was a fucking disaster, right? So I think that was the technical term for it. Yeah, understood. Yeah, I, I heard uh, I heard the Secretary of Education refer to it recently. <laughs> um, so given that, it, it still seems to me conceptually that you have this tool in the internet that could have the ability to help deliver better educational outcomes and take the money that we spend and let's say rather than putting it into building and maintenance, we can put it into teacher pay or whatever it is. And yet the actual anecdotal experience that we all had was the opposite of it. Is it just because it was a global pandemic and everything was fucked up? Or do you think the, the theory of online learning and the reality are just too different? Uh, yes to both. Okay. I mean, I think everything was fucked up. It was a global pandemic. The school systems were not prepared to teach virtually. Nobody had really any training on how to do it. Teachers weren't good at it. Students weren't engaged. It was not a good situation overall, but there were lots of things that went wrong. During the pandemic, that was one of them. I also, I'm kind of old school on this. Uh, maybe this goes back to the fact that, you know, I come from this family of teachers. I think having a human being in a room with a bunch of kids is actually a good model for helping kids learn. Um, and I don't believe that kids learn particularly well when they're looking at a screen. I just think that the ways in which they interact with screens now, every other part of their life, is not actually how you would want a kid to interact if they were trying to be taught something. So now go to your vocational higher ed kind of replacement. Um, would you still say that you need, even for a 20-year-old, um, them to be on a physical campus? Or if they could receive the instruction at a fraction of the cost online, would you do it? Well, I mean, part of the challenge there, Bradley, is that a lot of the things that you're training the kids for require hands-on. Yeah, understood. Right? So if you, you, you can't virtually teach a kid to draw blood. Right. Um, but you could arguably, you could, you I mean, could I mean, use you, your classroom space much more efficiently by determining what has to be in person and what doesn't. Yeah, I mean, look, I think that, that um, there will hopefully be a lot of different models. Uh, people will experiment with different ways of doing this. M my view is I think you need to get the kids in a room and you need to have a human being teaching them. Got it. Education reform. So there was a big moment, you and I were heavily involved in it, you know, around a decade ago, a little more, and you saw all of this progress and movement towards charter schools, towards sort of, you know, getting differentiated teachers, all this other stuff, and then it seems to have really faded. Did it, or am I just focused yeah. on other things in my life now? And if it <laughs> did, what happened? Um, I think that you're certainly right that when uh, President Obama was in the White House, he was a champion of these kinds of reforms. His education secretary, Arne Duncan, was a champion of these kinds of reforms. In the largest school system in the country, New York City, was run by a reformer, Mike Bloomberg. His Chancellor was Joel Klein, a real reformer. So there was kind of this moment mm -hmm. during the Obama presidency where these ideas were, were ascendant. Um, and I think that there was a kind of a, a counterattack that the union led, um, and it had some degree of success. Having said that, um, if you look at, for instance, the, the market share of charter schools in this country, which is not the end-all, be-all of reform, but is certainly one thing that reformers point to as an alternative to a, to a failing system, the market share of charters has gone up every year, goes up every year. Um, and that was true during the Obama administration, it was true during the Trump administration, and it has been true during the Biden administration. So with, if you look at that kind of metric, reform is continuing. Um, but in other places, I think that the politics of it has become more difficult. So um, Eric Adams. Our mayor in New York City, you were just talking New York City schools, you have been uh, an advisor to his city hall at times. Um, how is he doing on education? Um, I think we would still say great and complete. Okay. <laughs> um, I, you know, I think the, honestly, I think the jury is still out. Well, there was a huge teachers union contract, I think it was actually signed yesterday. Yeah. Um, the kinds of reforms that you were talking about earlier to say we will trade more money for more not productivity. So did you see any of those in there? I, I, I did not. So why do you think 
he chose to just give this all away? Well, I think it's that for the average politician, it's easier to just um, uh, give money in a contract and not really ask for anything in return. So you're a charter school advocate on the political side, and I think a lot of charter school advocates on the political side in New York City thought Eric Adams would be their candidate, poured millions and millions and millions of dollars into his campaign. Doesn't seem like the ROI has been there. What's your assessment of it? Well, um, we actually are going to get more charter schools in this state uh, than we did last year thanks to um, the state budget. The the governor actually did um, make some progress on behalf of kids in this regard, and there will be more charters in New York uh, this this upcoming year than than last year, uh, thanks to the budget, thanks to her leadership and her advocacy. Um, You know, I think that, that... that Mayor Adams has been less hostile to charters than Bill de Blasio. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of co-locations in particular, uh, Success Academies led by Eva Moskowitz uh, used to have knockout, drag, drag out fights with Bill de Blasio around co-locations, was really not able to get co-located. She has been able to be co-located under Mayor Adams. So I think you've seen some modest improvements over uh, over the past administration, it's not, you know, it's not the Bloomberg era. Right. So what mayors are good on education? Um, you know, I look in education, I kind of actually look at governors mm-hmm. okay. uh, more than mayors. Um, and I, I look at a place like Tennessee where uh, you have had a succession of both Democratic and Republican governors um, who have basically sustained this kind of reform agenda more money for schools, more money for teachers in exchange for a series of work reforms. And the, the results in Tennessee... The test scores are there. Th- they've gone off the charts. And the college preparedness Absolutely. is, is all yeah. there. Now, te- now, a lot of good things are happening economically in Tennessee. In addition, Nashville is obviously booming. Yeah. booming but um, it's not just Nashville. Um, Colorado is another place mm-hmm. where a succession of governors have basically been pro-reform yep. uh, and have... Prom- and didn't- did Mike Johnson just win the mayor? And Mike Johnson, who uh, was uh, was and is an education reformer, just won the mayor election yeah. in Denver. Um, and so, you know, the, the, those are. Uh, I would point to Louisiana as another example. Louisiana right. is not necessarily a place where no, but our and, and in fairness, our a, a Bloomberg acolyte, John White, our friend, right, was the person the, who created most of the policies right. of your president. Ran the right system. Now. Yeah. Even a place like Mississippi, mm-hmm. uh, which um, uh, was written about in the New York Times as a kind of an example of of where good things are happening in an unlikely place. So there are examples of where progress is being made statewide over a period of some years. You know, you can't, we have our wand, mm-hmm. um, but in real, obviously in the real world, it takes years and years and years and years, if not multiple administrations, in order to really move yeah. the needle. So you mentioned sort of Obama's support of that reform. Um, Bush had no child left behind. Right. Is there a Biden education ideology? Yeah, throw money at the problem. So that's it. But there's no, like, so they've increased spending just through general appropriations, but there's not, like, either. Like, it seemed like Bush and Obama had, and they weren't maybe totally dissimilar, but specific views as to we have a broken system, Here's how we can fix it. So I would I would uh, urge folks to go to the Wall Street Journal. They can read Mike Bloomberg on this topic. He has an op-ed mm-hmm. on the topic of education reform that just came out, uh, where he basically says that uh, Democrats are throwing money at the problem and not uh, asking for anything in exchange, and Republicans are basically overly politicizing the schools, right. um, focusing on all of these culture issues when, in fact, the problems are far more profound. Right. Must be nice for you to have Mike back in a position where he could just point out why both parties are wrong and mad about everything, <laughs> as opposed to trying to fit into a party. I mean, it's nice that he is able to say what he believes. Yeah. So um, let's pivot to uh, politics real fast since we just brought up Biden. Um, you're not known for your optimism. <laughs> I, I don't think people would really <laughs> say that about you. Um, so, and you are as sort of a student engaged politically as anyone I know. Give me how worried are you about 2024 and what's your outlook? Uh, you're right. I'm not known for my <laughs> optimism. Uh, and I am worried because um, I think that our democracy, once again, is in the balance. Yep. And it's exhausting. Uh, I don't think you want it. No healthy democracy keeps having election after election in which many people worry it could be the last one. That's just not. Mm-hmm. It's a destabilizing 
reality in and of itself, regardless of the outcome. It's not a healthy place for democracy to be. Um, I think Donald Trump is going to be the Republican nominee. I think regardless of what happens in the trials, I, I, you know, it's hard to predict. Right. Um, I don't know if we have our wand. I don't know if we have our crystal ball. I guess if, if we knew exactly what was going to happen with the trials yeah. and how many different indictments he was going to get. I think uh, he's going to be the Republican nominee. I think Joe Biden is going to be the Democratic nominee. I think Joe Biden will win again because people will basically decide that for whatever they don't like about Joe Biden, it is better to entrust the country to somebody who is not actually a threat to democracy. Right. But it will be an ugly, difficult, dispiriting process in which people are not left feeling particularly good about America. So a, a, a few wild card things, and you tell me of these like, just our political consultant text thread of like five very neurotic middle-aged Jewish men <laughs> worrying, or are these real concerns? Um, one would be Kamala Harris. So usually the vice president really just doesn't impact the election one way or another, but given Biden's age and given her unpopularity, are there people who will choose not to vote for Biden because they feel like they're therefore voting for Harris and they don't want to vote for her? Maybe, although it's quite possible that Donald Trump chooses a vice president who is... Who the fuck knows? Right, right? Who's, far, who's far worse. <laughs> yes, that's definitely true. Um, Arizona, no labels, right? So our, I don't think this was... I think this was a separate uh, Josh and I text thread yesterday, apart from the... You're having texts on the side, Bradley? Yeah, once in a while. You and I text on the side sometimes. That's um, and Josh was worrying about no labels having a third-party candidate in Arizona and Biden losing Arizona and therefore losing the election. How worried are you about that? I'm worried about it. Uh, I think that uh, uh, the prospect of a third party um, is a wild card that we don't need at a time where democracy hangs in the balance. So I think that's a pretty, a pretty bad idea. Now, if you were no labels or, or the forward party and you were trying to get ballot lines, the thing I've suggested to both of them, neither of them love this suggestion, was if Trump is not the nominee, give him your lines and split the ticket. Or if Trump is the nominee, but someone else like DeSantis did okay and they're willing to take it, give them your lines, right? Like that would actually use a third party line right to help get to the right. better outcome. Except they don't, they have decided somehow in, in the world that they live in that Joe Biden is the equal of Donald Trump, which is in my view insane. But that yeah. seems to be what they believe. I, so it's funny, when I, I, don't, I don't know the no labels people that well. I know the Andrew and the forward party people obviously pretty well. Um, I don't think they would articulate that in, in a conversation, but I think you're right. If they choose to run someone that's not someone meant to split the vote with Trump, then yes, I think it sort of effectively kind of lands um, in that place. L let's just play the parlor game that if Biden today decided, I've had enough, or he gets hit by a bus or whatever it is, who would you like to be the nominee? Um, probably Whitmer. Why? Because she has successfully governed in a swing Midwestern state mm -hmm. with lots of voters that we need to uh, win over. Two more possibilities that you would be okay with. Um, I don't know, we're going to edit out the long pause. Yeah, uh, no, no, I don't know. Imagine <laughs> if you could say, no, we're leaving. Yeah, really, in some ways, you probably just answered the question. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, to be no, I, no, I realize. Um, <laughs> So, all right, I'm going to pivot to the final topic, which has nothing to do with education or politics, but one of your obsessions is Disney. Ah. You have even been known to say, although I don't actually believe you, that your dream would be to retire and work on the Jungle Cruise ride uh, in Orlando at Disney. That is exactly correct. Right. Uh, so, I, one, don't buy it. But two, although I do, it's funny, if you, I, when I go to Disney, I always sort of text Howard, especially if I do go to the Jungle Cruise, and I forgot, I was at Disney a couple of weeks ago and thought about you, but didn't do it. And I felt badly about that. So oh. I apologize for you not getting a text of proof that I was on the Jungle Cruise ride. Did you enjoy it? Again. Um, it's okay. You know, it's funny. So, so this um, is imagine, sort of, imagine I'm your skipper. I would be much better. Yeah. Radically better. But the problem is you, there's a script. I mean, you're not allowed to deviate from the script, uh, right? They have some degree of leeway. Okay. All right. Because that's really, because if, if, if the, with the leeway, you could see how maybe it can improve. A little bit. It seems to me that a lot of the corny jokes they're forced to make uh, are not probably of their own I, I like those jokes. Um, so, um, journal article today, I sent it to you, so I assume you saw it. 
talking about Disney theme park attendance being down. Um, why do you think that is? And based on your own experience as a frequent park goer, has the experience worsened in some way? Um, I wonder actually if the if the sort of the political fights that Disney has become embroiled in has had an impact on park attendance. Mm -hmm. I don't I don't know that. Uh, I'm sure they know it. Yeah. Um, but they definitely their brand has become politicized in ways that they would never have wanted. Uh, and I have to believe that at least on the margins, it's having an impact. I mean, one of the things I like about Disney World, I've always liked about Disney World, is that it is one of the few places in America where you can go and feel like you're surrounded by Americans from everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, rich, poor, middle class, north, east, south, west, etc., Republican and Democrat. Um, and if, if that is changing, if, if sort of red state America has soured a little bit on Disney, that might have an impact on park attendance. Um, you know, I, I think they raised their prices a little bit, mm -hmm. uh, and I imagine obviously there's some degree of price sensitivity. Uh, you know, if park attendance, I imagine if you're Disney, is not the sole thing that you look at, right? You're obviously looking at revenue. Right. And so if they have increased the amount that you pay to be there, and as a result... And if you it, charge more for the turkey legs. And you charge more for the turkey legs, and, and attendance has gone down, but you're still making more money, that's okay. I mean, I would argue that there were times where I was there that it was so crowded that it was uncomfortable. Right. And so basically... It was, I was, when I was, I was at Disneyland, it was pretty crowded. Right. Like, and, I didn't notice yeah. it, it not being full. You know, cre the, the, they have done lots of different things over the years to provide opportunities for people to go in, in odd hours, so to yeah. speak, really early in the morning, really late at night. Because it's really crowded during yeah, the day. Yeah, those are good. We've taken matters. Yeah. But when I was there a few weeks ago, I was with my kids. So he's got a 17-year-old, a 14-year-old, and then a, a friend and his son who was 13. And uh, I was talking to Abby last night, and she was saying she's going to Coney Island today. And I said, look, so how do you kind of compare that to Disney? And she was pretty lukewarm on our last Disney experience. She wow. was just sort of like, like the ride of the resistance is really great, the yeah. new Star Wars ride. Yeah. And after that, like... She couldn't, we, we had a nice time. Actually, you know what? It wasn't worth it. We drove fucking forever. We sat in traffic. We couldn't get to the parking lot. We couldn't get out of the parking lot. Um, the reality is, I, you know, if my kids really wanted to go back, I would. But but that also might have been my last Disney trip to have grandkids. So it pains me to hear that. Yes. <laughs> it hurts. It hurts my heart. If you uh, ever do have a Jungle Cruise ride that you're operating, I will go. Thank you. Uh, I would yes. hope you go. I would hope you go more than once. I think that that 17 is really not the sweet spot for Disney. Yeah. Right. I think it is. I think it is a, a really an ideal place. 55 is the sweet spot. Uh, well, 17 if you're like taking acid and going to the tiki room. So I, I want to. <laughs> I'm going to admit something. You've done I don't, that. I, that I don't know if I've told you. I went uh, this past year with a uh, with a friend. With a friend who is my age. Oh, without kids? Without kids. That's questionable behavior, Howard. No, I, I am not ashamed of it. <laughs> That's why I'm first learning of it now. I talk to you every single day. <laughs> uh, I think others knew about it. Um, you may not have been paying attention, but I, uh, and I make no bones about it. I'm not ashamed. I, I would do it again. In fact, we're talking about another trip next year. What was the single best thing? All right, so last thing I hope I, if, if you're going to Disney, Howard, so we like to end our, our Tuesday podcast with Hugh asking me for a recommendation. A Howard Wilson Disney recommendation. That's how we're ending. Jungle Cruise. There you go. All right. Uh, Howard, how do people learn more about all the work you guys are doing at Bloomberg Philanthropies? Um, you know, I would, I would really recommend uh, Mike's op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. It yep. kind of sets out a little bit of our thinking around education reform. We will definitely be making more news around this um, career tech pathways initiative uh, and we're really, really excited about it. Cool. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.